Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with the platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 37 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Richard Blagrove. Richard is the author of Strength and Conditioning for Endurance Running and is also a lecturer in physiology and the program lead for the MSc in Strength and Conditioning at Loughborough University. Richard's main background is providing support to middle and long distance runners and on today's podcast we discuss Richard's thoughts on screening running based athletes from the ground up how Richard would apply his capacity, strength and rate of activation model to an endurance runner in comparison to a court or field sport athlete. And finally, amongst many other things, the underpinning factors of running performance and how strength and conditioning can be used to improve these factors. Let's get on with today's podcast. How are you doing today, Rich? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for the invitation to come on. My pleasure. My pleasure. And thank you for making time on a Friday evening. <laughs> Uh, I'll kick off with a question I ask all guests, uh, and that is, uh, why do you do what you do? Yeah, great question to start. Um, So at the moment, I'm lecturer in physiology and a programme leader for the Masters in Strength and Conditioning at Loughborough University. Um, And yeah, I guess why I do what I do, I, I feel incredibly lucky in many respects because like ever since I was, I was a really young child, I was remember playing sport, being incredibly passionate and enthusiastic for any sort of exercise and physical activity. Um, and as I was growing up and doing A-levels and university and so on, I was just super interested in the science behind it all. Um, so the reasons why the body responded in the way it did, um, how I could optimise my own training for sport Um and that kind of then spilled into my career. Um, and I kind of always saw myself going down the route of, of strength and conditioning and, and exercise physiology. So I think if I wasn't able to, to lecture and, and coach and provide consultancy to high level athletes, um, I'd certainly be doing a different job, but probably reading as a hobby in, in these sorts of topics. So I feel incredibly lucky to be doing it for a living. And in terms of uh, your philosophy then, um, firstly, what is your philosophy when it comes to training athletes? And out of interest, does it change when you're working with uh, younger athletes at all? Yeah, it's, again, another really good question around philosophy. And I don't necessarily think my philosophy is highly unique to to just me and what I do. Um, but certainly because... My main background over the last 10 years certainly has been providing support to middle and long distance runners. I think that's kind of shaped my philosophy a little bit, certainly over the last five years. Um, And so I I, I try and be as time efficient as I can with the strength and condition prescription that I give to athletes. Um, So what I mean by that is a lot of the time endurance athletes are, are doing quite high volumes of training. They've got a lot of other stuff going on in their lifestyle, whether it be educational programs, part-time jobs, uh, relationships and social life and so on. And they're often quite sceptical about strength training, um, especially if they're fairly new to it. And so fitting in small amounts of strength training around what they're already doing is quite important. So, yeah, whether you call that sort of time efficiency or a minimal dose response is, yeah, I don't really know. Um, but that's that's become quite important to me over the last few years, certainly. Um, like I try and I, I guess with my scientist hat on, I try and use like a very much an adaptation led approach to training and programming. Um, so really trying to understand what physical qualities and capabilities that my athlete requires um, that are both unique to the sport and, and, and unique to them as an individual. And then try to understand as best as possible the sort of stimuli that an exercise or a training activity creates which might help develop some of those those physical training qualities and a lot of the time those might not necessarily look or or mimic anything that goes on in the athlete's sport um, but might develop certain physical competencies that underpin other more important specific physical qualities and so therefore end up kind of helping performance 
And I guess the third thing, um, I've been lucky enough to work with some really excellent uh, practitioners from, from other disciplines as part of multidisciplinary support teams. So certainly physiotherapists, um, some biomechanists, other exercise physiologists, and then definitely technical running coaches. Um, so I've sort of had to become fairly comfortable with asking others um, for solutions to problems um, if, if I can't solve them. And, and certainly getting input from those members of interdisciplinary support teams um, so we can try and optimise um, prescription and, and training with, with particular athletes rather than trying to do everything by myself, I guess. And in terms of your adaptation uh, based approach, I mean, I remember when I was at the IS as an example, and I would probably annoy the coaches because I'd be like, why is this exercise good for this athlete? And in the end, they just said, look, it's not about the exercise. It's about the adaptation that we're going for. Uh, so how do you get people away from this mindset of, for example, you see stuff on social media all the time, like the three best leg exercises for let's say runners as an example, uh, how do we get people away from that kind of thinking and how do we get them to appreciate why it's better to start with the adaptation than just picking an exercise? Yeah, I think when I'm teaching my students, um, I, I kind of explain it as, as you've just done, really. So um, the, the start point is always going to be the sport um, and the skill or the outcome that an athlete's looking to achieve in that sport. Um, but then quite simply you can explain it well what's what does your training week look like at the moment and they start describing technical training sessions which are practicing the skills um or yeah the the, the technical aspects of of their actual sport but they're not doing or rehearsing what the outcome is for the actual sport if that makes sense so like an easy easy example that i always use is if you've got an individual that's trying to run 10k as fast as they possibly can like the most specific type of training is obviously to rehearse running 10k as fast as you possibly can but a runner or a technical running coach won't do that um, they'll do some long slow distance they'll do some shorter interval training sessions they'll do some hill sprints they'll do some tempo type work they might do some aerobic cross training um, they might do some technical running drills and like without realizing all of those types of training are a little bit less specific than running 10k but a good technical coach will understand why they're prescribing all of those sorts of exercises because they're trying to develop certain physiological characteristics or determinants that are important for performance so whether it be vo2 max or economy um, or some sort of threshold on a blood lactate curve and so all of those things are certainly important but because it's still running and it's still simulating and mimicking the actual task of running, it's kind of, it's easy for them to relate to it. And so it's attractive that they're still doing the skill they want to do. But if we kind of extend that continuum out and keep going down that sort of reductionist type route of kind of saying, okay, let's take some of those physiological constructs and let's try and understand them a little bit better. So what really underpins VO2 max, what really underpins running economy and then extend it into injury as well and say, OK, these are the sorts of injuries you've had in the past. These are the typical injuries that, um, that distance runners get. So therefore, let's try and understand some of the risk factors that underpin those injuries. We can start to test individ individual physical qualities um, and therefore try and develop some of those qualities with other types of training activity and exercise. And so kind of where you end up is exercises that don't really look, feel or resemble anything that's happening in the sport, but they're training a specific energy system or a particular tissue um, or a particular physiological system because it underpins more important things that do relate to the sport. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really talking about a, a specificity continuum and trying not to get wrapped up in, in visually how an exercise looks and, or, or potentially how it feels and, and rather trying to plug a, a particular deficiency or adaptation that's lacking. And uh, in terms of determining some of the physical determinants around, like you already mentioned uh, VO2 max there, but just broadly speaking, what are some of the physical determinants of uh, successful endurance, run, endurance running performance? Yeah, so endurance running is 
obviously mainly limited by our, our physiology. Um, like we'd love it to be mainly limited by strength, but it's not. <laughs> so it's mainly limited by physiological attributes. Um, like probably still like the classical model of, um, of dis endurance running performance still um, it's probably the best way to describe it. So that has three main factors. VO2 max, which is the, the maximum amount of oxygen that I can take from the atmosphere, um, inspire into my body, transport around my vascular system to the working muscles, and then the working muscles use that oxygen effectively in order to create energy for performance. Um, there's then fractional utilization, which is the percentage of VO2 max that I can access for a given distance or, or duration of, of effort. And then I guess the important one for strength and conditioning coaches is running economy, which is the amount of oxygen or energy um, that it takes to perform at a submaximal running intensity. And those those three factors combined together, like they're able to predict about to about 95 percent accuracy, um, most types of middle and long distance performance. Um, and like one of the studies from my PhD showed that in junior distance runners, it was able to predict performance of about 85% accuracy as part of a, 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 like a regression model. For those just out of interest, um, what, what do you think the discrepancy is between, for example, those factors being 95% predictive of, say, adult endurance runners, but only 85% in youth endurance runners? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, there's, there's probably a few other things potentially related to or just like psychological attributes. Um, so like the usual confounding factors um, associated with lifestyle and, and psychology, potentially. Um, like there, there might be there's been speculation around like whether there's kind of like a fourth model sort of hidden. Uh, sorry, fourth factor that's hidden behind those three, that it's how they might be changing during a performance. So marathon running um, usually used to illustrate that, that obviously over a really long duration effort, things like um, fractional utilization and economy are potentially shifting a little bit. So they're deteriorating as a result of, of fatigue occurring. And so if they deteriorate to a greater extent in some runners compared to others, that's something that's not really characterized as part of that kind of three factor model. So that, that could be one, um, but that probably applies a little bit more to, to well-trained and, and elite runners, I'd say. And uh, in terms of those three factors you just measured, uh, and you just said, sorry, uh, I'm sure that there's coaches listening to this who may be aware that there's ways of sort of getting a proxy on something like VO2 max without necessarily having access to, for example, university lab type equipment. Uh, are there any ways that you might be able to get a handle on something like fractional utilization or running economy without necessarily having those expensive, um, that expensive equipment to hand? Yes, certainly VO2 max is, is the easy one. So I think most people will be familiar with things like the yo-yo test, the multi-stage fitness test, 12-minute um, Cooper run, and, and these sorts of um, predictive field tests. Like th those are pretty good. Um, and, and so it's easy to find either yeah, sub-maximal or maximal field-based tests that are able to predict VO2 max. Um, fractional utilization's fairly tricky, but I think you could probably predict it. And so if you get an estimation of somebody's speed at VO2 max, and so a lot of S&C coaches will be familiar with um, the maximal aerobic speed test, which is... Um, as far as you can get in five minutes, essentially. So if you ideally go to an athletics track or a fairly flat field um, on, a, on a day where the environmental conditions are, uh, are appropriate, like run as far as you possibly can in five minutes and then calculate your um, average speed over that distance. And that roughly equates to speed at VO2 max. If you then do a um, like a time trial over 10K or a half marathon, you'll then get a speed for, for that particular distance. And if you work out the percentage of your 10K or half marathon speed as, as, as a percentage of your speed at VO2 max, that won't be too far off, like a fractional utilization es estimation at least. Um, economy is probably the most difficult one. <laughs> and um, 
I think a lot of people watch others running and they'll kind of say, oh, that runner's really economical. Like, look, look how efficient and effective they are with their technique. And then they'll look at somebody else and say, oh, they've got an awful technique. They're so uneconomical or, or inefficient. And that doesn't, um, that doesn't seem to be that accurate at actually predicting who's the most economical and efficient. Um, like heart rate's been used at times as a bit of a proxy for, for economy. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's not particularly great. Um, so yeah, sorry, I can't offer a, uh, a, an accurate answer for, for, for what could predict economy, but there's, there's probably nothing better than a lab test, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, just listening to you speak there, it makes me think of, well, of a couple of examples. Uh, one, obviously of Paula Radcliffe and you think, well, till very recently, depending on whether you count the Nike efforts was world record holder and for example someone might say oh well eddie hall's technique's not the most efficient because he lifts with a slightly rounded back and you're like well he's also the world record holder so he's doing something right yeah absolutely and i think the really really good running coaches have got a fairly good eye for um for what makes well individual runners especially a little bit more efficient and economical um, but I think I think globally, uh, yeah, if, if you took 10 runners and you were to line them up and say, OK, who's the most economical, who's using the, the least amount of energy at a given speed? It would be a really, really difficult task to do, um, even if you're a runner yourself. <laughs> and I know this is a massively broad question, so feel free to dive down whichever avenue you want. Um, but in terms of deciding either as a strength and conditioning coach or a technical coach, as to whether your quick wins lie in terms of improving the skill of running or what we would deem technically efficient running or simply improving the ability to tolerate a, for want of a better word, suboptimal running pattern. Uh, what kind of things would influence your decision-making process when you're looking at a runner in that kind of context? Yeah, really interesting question, that one. Um, and I haven't I haven't done loads around gait retraining myself um, as a strength and conditioning coach. Typically, I'm programming the, the gym based activities, um, some speed work potentially, but I haven't done loads with uh, with too many runners around gait retraining. But there's certainly some things that I would um, that I would be looking for. And so if, if you're seeing runners who have got um, a foot strike, which is a long way in front of their center of mass, um, and particularly if they've had a succession of injuries around the knee and the hip, especially, that, that would certainly be a, a red flag for me. And so just to be clear for your listeners, it's, it's not that I'm suggesting that heel striking or, or rear foot striking is bad, um, because the majority of the research doesn't necessarily suggest that that's the case. It's more where the foot's striking relative to the body, or the, so the hips as an approximation, that's important. So if people are striking a long way in front of their hips with a very straight knee, that might be something that I might look to change and try and pull the, the foot back a little bit towards um, towards where their hips are. Um, a similar one is kind of the opposite end of stance phase, that if you were seeing runners with a very straight uh, knee in the toe-off position, that's generally associated with having poorer economy. And so I typically want to see runners in a toe-off position, so their foot leaving the ground in the last part of ground contact with their knee very slightly bent and as close to underneath the hips as, as we can, rather than kind of overstriding out, out, of, out, the, uh, out the back. Um, I think looking at a runner from the front is also really useful. Um, and so if we're seeing like a pronounced hip drop, so the, the hip of the, the stance leg popping out to the side, which will typically pull the knee across the body slightly. And so SNC coaches will kind of know it as a, a kind of knee valgus position. Um, but it essentially looks like the knee's caving in towards the midline of the body. Um, that's not a very healthy position for the knee to be in. And that's often associated with things like patellofemoral pain, iliotibial band syndrome, um, sometimes hip pain and lower back pain. And so that, that would also be something that I'd be looking to correct. Um, but I think those three things mainly related to both economy and injury to some extent. There's other kind of minor things like I'd potentially have a look at the upper body. If it's laterally flexing and rotating excessively, it might be something that I'd look to correct. Um, 
And the only other thing related to economy, which has been shown pretty consistently across the scientific literature, is is how much runners bob up and down. Um, and so if we're seeing a lot of kind of vertical oscillation of the centre of mass, again, that doesn't seem to be very beneficial for economy. And so if you look at the really elite world class runners that have typically got very good economies, um, like the kind of belly button or the sort of hip level, it barely changes. Um, so they're hitting the ground, they're bouncing back off again, and there's, there's, there's barely any vertical oscillation there at all. And so if we, if we try and minimise that, that's, that seems to be quite helpful for, for running economy. And in terms of, you mentioned there that you might, for example, programme a little bit of uh, speed work. In terms of building a speed reserve, if you will, um, or indeed trying to train a runner to get faster over shorter distances and improving that ceiling, um, what practical recommendations would you have in terms of raising that speed reserve whilst... I suppose, not interfering too much with the endurance qualities, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I think with runners or any any athlete for that matter, who's fairly new to strength and conditioning, and that probably extends in, into youth athletes as well, just purely getting them in the gym and making them a little bit stronger on bilateral, unilateral um, fundamental exercises like squat, deadlift, lunge, step up and so on has generally been shown to improve things like sprint speed quite quickly, just because it's quite a novel stimulus. The neuromuscular system gets an overload, and so they're capable of producing more force through similar movement patterns. And so I'd keep it fairly basic in the early days, and, and that will improve sprint speeds up to a point. I think introducing some plyometrics and initially fairly low intensity and then gradually building the intensity over time has also been shown to be, um, to be really helpful. Um, but I think for the, the more intermediate and advanced athlete, and particularly for a lot of the runners that I work with, in order to, to improve maximal sprint speed, like, like quite simply, they, they just have to sprint. Um, so they just have to get to an athletics track or some sort of indoor sports hall facility, and they have to do some, some real maximal speed work. Um, and it, it sounds simple, but quite often for endurance runners, their interpretation of a speed session is doing like eight times 300 with a minute recovery. And, and that might be a speed session for a 10K half marathon runner. And so it's like, like relatively speaking for an endurance runner, it probably is speed. But the way that, that, that we interpret speed as strength and conditioning coaches is trying to raise the, the, max, the ceiling for, for, for max, of maximum velocity. And so in order to do that, you need to be sprinting full out, like a 100% maximum. And the only way that you can do that is by is by having a run up where you build up to speed, um, hit your maximal your maximal sprint speed, and then hold it for no more than about thirty or forty meters. And so the total distance of the repetitions is a bit more like sixty, maybe seventy meters, um, with quite long recoveries. So not like a minute, but a very slow walk back recovery, two to three minutes, and then go again. And, and that's that's proper speed training, even for an endurance athlete. Um, and, and, and over time, that will, will hopefully improve their maximal sprint speed. And in terms of where that would fit, for example, within their training program, uh, I've heard, for example, someone like Vern Gambetta say stuff. And I'm intrigued as to whether it's backed by research or just his personal observations that he doesn't particularly like, for example, doing speed stuff and then doing conditioning stuff in the same session because... He says the body then remembers the last stimulus or remembers the fact that there was more conditioning than, say, pure speed work. Would you, for example, I don't know, program that speed as a block of stuff early pre-season? Or would that be, I don't know, micro-dosed as part of a warm-up leading into the endurance stuff? How would you approach that? So a lot of the runners that I, I work with do it most of the year round. Um some I try and stress that they need to do a little bit more of it because I think they would benefit from becoming faster and others perhaps do a little bit less and are just sort of trying to maintain like pure speed qualities. Um, where it's placed within the week is, yeah, it's often quite tricky, um, particularly when you've got runners that are, are running very high mileages because they're always tired. And so even if you tell them to sprint maximally, like whether they're, whether they're truly at their, their individual max is, is probably quite debatable. Um, 
like I, th- I think if if you're trying to get some real quality uh, and top end speed, you've got to kind of look at the training week and and try and ascertain where they're going to be freshest. Um, and quite often, that's when they're they're actually doing their hardest sessions of the week. And so their technical coach will say, right, on a, on a Tuesday and on a Saturday morning, like these are your really, really key sessions for the week. So you're going to be doing like a, a hard tempo run or you're going to be doing, I don't know, six by five minutes at, at close to, to 10K race intensity, something like that. And so with that in mind, like more often than not, I'll get my runners to do their really hard sprint work just before they do that session. And so they'll do a, a very easy warm up. Um, they then might do some some movement skills, some dynamic mobilization type exercises. And then because they usually do strides anyway, and so runners will, will just kind of float and do 70, 80, maybe 90 percent effort um, on some flat ground. I'll just kind of formalize that. And so it won't be a, a large amount of work, but it will just I'll just stress to them that, OK, do do a couple of strides but then add on four or five additional um, additional sets of sprints and actually get close to max because it's not going to fatigue you for the session because it's such a such a small amount of work. It's so high quality and the recoveries are quite long. So then you can go into your session as normal and it shouldn't be impacted, particularly if they're quite well trained. Um, I think if it really needs to be prioritised, um, it should form part of S&C sessions. And, and potentially, if, if there's like a third bout of, of hard sprinting in a week, it could form part of its own session. And so a runner does, again, a warm up and then finishes at an indoor facility or an athletics track and does their short sprint session and then essentially goes home. Um, and you've just got to find a time in the week that is suitable to put in that, that type of effort. And in your uh, podcast with uh, Rob Anderson, you mentioned how some of your runners had benefited from what we'd call a sort of post-activation potentiation effect from drip feeding and plyometric work. Um, I don't suppose you've observed anything similar with, for example, dropping in the sprint stuff prior to the tempo stuff. So my, my own research hasn't, um, hasn't looked at that. We, we haven't done any of, of that sort of sprinting. Um, we, we did publish a, a review paper on this, yeah, the, the potentiation area for endurance performers um, in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And yeah, that was that was kind of a, a side paper for my PhD, really. Um, but that did show some similar findings. So I'm trying to think if there was any studies in running specifically, certainly in rowing and one or two in cycling, they've done similar sorts of protocols. So just maximal effort um type performances as part of a warm-up before some sort of extensive endurance time trial and they'll typically find improvements in performance um so i'd yeah i I wouldn't i wouldn't see any reason why it wouldn't work um but i i guess it'd be useful to have some experimental evidence to support that of course of course and in terms of uh for example, your testing battery for runners. If I'm a runner and I come and see you on day one and we agree to work with each other, walk me through what your testing battery would look like. Yeah, so I, I still use a movement screen. and I know they've, um, they've been debated quite a lot over the years, um, but movement screens still provide some useful insight in terms of um, asymmetries, movement control, like how much mobility runners have got around certain joints and so I'll use a glute bridge march which is essentially like a glute bridge but switching sides very slow and controlled I'll use um, a standing rotation um, where runners essentially stand with feet hip width apart toes pointing at 12 o'clock and then they rotate their hips around about 45 degrees um, in either direction and you're looking at essentially what their feet are doing and how their feet are behaving in a pronation, supination pattern. Um, I'll do an arabesque to look at hip hinging and uh, and flexibility into like a hip flexion pattern. Um, I'll use a walk-in lunge with a high step through, um, single leg squat them, and then usually do like a, a kind of Superman or bird dog type exercise. Um, I think I think that's the yeah that's the six that I use. Um, they'll then do some explosive strength and, and plyometric tests. So I, I use a, a bog standard counter movement jump. 
Um, and then we'll do like a reactive strength index profile. If I've got either a, a jump mat um, or a force plate that I can do it on. So they'll start at 15 centimeters and work all the way up to 60 centimeters and essentially do a drop jump where they're trying to spend a short time on the ground and trying to jump as high as possible. Um, I played around a little bit with using like a 30 second of repeat hops. And so like runners, yeah, they'll typically get in like a really, really high volume of hops in 30 seconds. But again, trying to short keep a short ground contact time and maximize height. You see quite pronounced drop-offs, particularly in those that haven't got um, repeatable plyometric qualities or they've got large asymmetries between right and left. So that's been quite insightful. Um, and then depending on if I've got access to strength testing equipment, I've, I've sometimes used isometric mid-thigh pulls uh, with runners. Um, I'm trying at the moment to develop like a calf strength test. And so like I know the EIS have used it quite extensively and um, been working with a couple of practitioners at, at Loughborough on, on, uh, on their calf strength um, assessments. But we're trying to look to develop a seated one at the moment. So it specifically targets the strength in soleus. Um, so that's hopefully something I'm going to use. Usually if I've not got access to, to sort of strain gauges and force plates and so on, I'll use some indirect um, measures of, of, of strength and just assess capacity around the calf, hamstring and trunk. So that's a single leg calf raise test, one second up, one second down for as many repetitions as they can through full range. Um, I'll do an elevated straight leg hamstring bridge. Again, one second up, one second down for as many repetitions as possible. And then usually assess um, uh, trunk capacity. So both um, side hold right and left, prone hold, and then a uh, like a lion anterior trunk hold position. It's so like a kind of leg raise, leg raise position. Um, sometimes do Nordics as well, if I've got access to a Nord board. But uh, yeah, I, I haven't done those two recently. Um, but yeah, that's, I think that's all, all of the assessments that I typically use. And just as an offshoot on the uh, capacity side of things, uh, just something I've noticed anecdotally when I've demonstrated or tested with myself or when I've used them with athletes. Uh, when athletes start to cramp with the capacity tests, are there any specific things that you would attribute that to or could that be down to a multitude of factors? Because I've had athletes, I mean, myself included, um, like to think I'm pretty strong, like deadlifted three times body weight, but then on a hamstring bridge, a few reps yeah. in and my hamstrings are going crazy. Yeah, I think it's just the local kind of muscular fatigue. Uh, so it's just the metabolic stress that's occurring in the muscle that you're really overloading. And so, yeah, if, if an athlete can't sustain the tempo that I'm asking for, the range of movement or any of the technical markers, then, then the test would stop. Um, if they look, if, if they start to develop some strength and maybe use some of that, of that capacity type approach to developing some more endurance in that area, like I typically, you'd usually see that that sort of effect um, start to reduce. So if you were to do the same tests again, they should improve and not experience the same level of cramp. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably just fatigue mainly. Fair enough. And uh, in terms of then, for example, uh, building a program off of that assessment, I know in your book you said that it's, even though you present, for example, capacity, strength and rate of activation or power, uh, yep. I know you mentioned specifically, it's not necessarily you must do capacity and then once you've got enough capacity, you do strength and then you do power. Um, so how do you determine then what that program looks like if it's not necessarily right? We'll do all capacity and then we'll do all strength and then we'll do all power, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I don't think I've got necessarily a, a formula or, or an algorithm here. It's it's a combination of things, as, as you'll know from your own coaching. So um, like how much time that the athletes got to dedicate to strength and conditioning, what facilities they've got access to. Um, really importantly is, is what injuries they've had in the past. And so if they're displaying really, really poor capacity around the calf or the hamstrings, um, let's say, and they've had injuries in that area, then it's got to be an area for, for focus um, as, as part of, of the strength and conditioning. Um, Typically, our athletes are scoring pretty poorly on those capacity tests. Then just doing similar types of exercises, even just with body weight or with a very light load, 
it's going to be enough of a strength stimulus to kind of tick the capacity and the strength box. And they'll improve quite quickly on the test um, over a period of, of four to six weeks anyway. Um, if runners are scoring pretty well, so they're kind of 20 and upwards or ideally over 30 on the, on the uh, calf and hamstring tests, I prioritise a little bit more just the heavy, the heavy loaded exercises um, and then start to gradually trickle in and introduce some of the, um, uh, the exercises that, that have got a higher velocity component in the weights room. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it depends on quite a few different factors and, and also the, the kind of ongoing over, over the off season, um, what kind of niggles and, and fatigue that they're picking up as part of, a part of their running training. And that would, that would influence the decisions as well. And in terms of uh, running based athletes who aren't uh, quote unquote endurance runners. So athletes who run as a byproduct of their sport, field athletes, core athletes, would the process be fairly similar in terms of those are the assessments you'd use and you'd want the capacity to be there before you start layering on other things? Um, I think yes and no, really. Um, I think the, the, the battery of tests that I would use with an athlete from a different sport would, would obviously be quite different um, because we go through a, a similar needs analysis type process, looking at the biomechanics, the physiology, common injuries, previous injuries, and that then informs the testing battery that I would use with the athlete. And so I'd have a, a slightly different data set with, with an athlete from a different sport. Um, if an athlete from a completely different sport still required high levels of maximal strength, let's say, like the means and methods to improve maximal strength in a distance runner versus, well, let's, let's say a rugby player, for example, they're obviously still going to be fairly similar. So they're still going to squat, they're still going to deadlift, they're still going to potentially do step-ups, lunges, these sorts of things. Um and so, it's, yeah, like for me, it's it, it's about programming and providing the stimulus required to elicit the adaptations that underpin a certain physical capacity. Um, I think the sports specificity bit comes in when you, you try to prioritise different physical qualities. And so you might have similar tests or the same tests, so for like strength, explosive strength and plyometric qualities. Um but for a runner, for example, who relied, rely really, really heavily on stretch shortening cycle as part of running gait, I might want to prioritize more plyometrics and the results that I've got on that test compared to an athlete from another sport that might not be so heavily dependent upon their stretch shortening cycle. But I've still tested it, if that if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I think the other bit around the sports specificity is is um, with with healthy athletes that haven't necessarily got injuries. Um, like what areas of the body that you're targeting for conditioning. Um, and so, for example, in, in a rugby player or swimmer, you're potentially going to be looking around the neck and the shoulder and the pectoral girdle and a little bit more of thoracic mobility potentially compared to, again, other end of the scale, like a distance runner, where I'm going to be focusing the conditioning a bit more on calf, Achilles, plantar fascia, and maybe some barefoot conditioning potentially some more hamstring stuff. So it kind of biases the, the, the more targeted strength training and conditioning to the areas that are vulnerable to injury. And just going back to your, you mentioned about isometric testing of the soleus. Um, in terms of programming stuff like isometrics or eccentrics, um, I put my hands up, it's an area that I want to learn more about or I'm not as well versed in as I feel like I should be. Um, how do you go about, firstly, I suppose, deciding that there's a need for either of those two modalities and uh, secondly what are some of the adaptations that for example going for an isometric or an eccentric is going to give you beyond say just your normal lift the weight up put the weight down uh, type of exercises yeah I th I'd, I'd usually bias towards eccentric or isometric when I'm trying to target any sort of tenderness type tissue or connective tissue Things like ligaments, um, tendons, fascia, connective tissue, they, they seem to respond best to really high magnitudes of load. And so obviously the contraction regime needs to be either eccentric or isometric in, in nature. Um, so from an injury prevention perspective, I'd be picking yeah, as virtually as high a load as the athlete can handle and they're holding static positions or moving through range in a very controlled eccentric manner. My understanding of the literature in that area is that the 
the, the, the muscular regime, whether it's eccentric or isometric, doesn't matter as much. Um, I think 10 or so years ago, it was more like, OK, eccentrics are, are the key. But I think the more contemporary literature is kind of suggesting that it's it's more the magnitude of load rather than the, the contraction regime that's important. Um, I think if we're trying to get muscular type adaptations, that's a, a little bit different. And so we know that eccentric regimes of work will lead to um, like longer muscle fascicles. They'll en enable muscles to tolerate um, more eccentric load if, if they're being exposed to that as part of a skill. So that's probably the best example being the hamstrings as part of high speed sprinting, that they'll need like eccentric regimes of work in order to get those adaptations and, uh, and, and protect against hamstring strain injury. And so, yeah, I think going back to my original point that I made um, at, the, at the start of the talk, like I think it comes down just to understanding what adaptation that you're after, what tissue you're trying to target, and then picking the the, the, the muscle contraction type, the load, and uh, the, the sets and recoveries that, that required to elicit that adaptation. And on the subject of adaptation, how do you, like if we talk about the capacity stuff for a second, so obviously that's going to be high volume, low intensity. Uh, how do you sort of say to a runner, right, we're going to do these capacity type exercises, which I'm imagining are probably going to get more buy-in from a runner who <laughs> identifies with that, but then at the same time saying to them, for example, the circuit training that you're doing isn't quite hitting the adaptation that we want, if that question makes sense. Yeah, and I think like usually circuit training brings with it connotations of like how, how many repetitions can I do in 30 seconds? I'm going to do them with really bad form um, and I'm just trying to I'm trying to get my breathing rate up. I'm trying to get sweaty, trying to get my heart rate up and so on which it obviously doesn't have to be. Um, so you can arrange exercises in a circuit. You can have it capacity-based if you wish, but you can still have quite a lot of quality there. And so it's, I think it's just a case of making sure that you're giving the instructions correctly um, if the athlete is doing them by themselves and obviously coaching them effectively if, if you're with the athlete. And, yeah, potentially making sure that they are having recovery between individual stations and um, and so, yeah, it's, it's not a case of just rattling off as many as you can do and making sure there's an, a strong element of quality there um, rather, rather than just quantity. And in terms of the uh, foot and ankle conditioning, for example, which forms uh, a heavy part of uh, your book, would your conditioning model for, say, an endurance athlete in terms of the foot and ankle, um, how to what extent might that be different? for say an explosive a jumping athlete compared to I suppose a athlete who just has to tolerate higher volume but not as much force if that makes sense yeah I think so um again I, th I think it would stem from um the testing and screening that we did with that athlete and so if we've got a jumping athlete or maybe a games player perhaps if they've had some issues around that part of the body it's something that a physio's flagged. They've potentially looked at foot posture, perhaps. Um, they've looked at mobility in, in key joints around that area. Then doing some sort of barefoot conditioning might be one route that you could go with, with an athlete like that. The reason I think it's probably a bit more important just, just as a general principle for distance runners is they obviously do really, really high volumes of, uh, of running on their feet. Um, most of the time they're in heavily cushioned trainers. And so I think taking them out of uh, taking their feet out of that sort of environment, trying to gain a little bit more kind of intrinsic control around the, the muscles and joints of the foot, trying to make sure we've, we're getting mobility through the ankle, mobility through the big toe. But equally, we're developing stiffness when it's required as well through the Achilles and the, and the plantar fascia in particular um, and building up some integrity in, in the bones and tissues of the foot. Um, it is really important. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there was, there was a study that was published fairly recently, which took a group of runners and exposed them to some barefoot conditioning, um, I think three or four times a week, and showed a, um, a lower injury incidence in the group that did the barefoot conditioning compared to the group that, that just, did, uh, just carried on their normal running training. Like, like oddly, the, um, the injury incidence was, uh, was lower globally, so um, 
it was just like the, the total number of injuries rather than the total number of injuries specifically around the foot and the ankle, which is, is quite an odd finding. Um, but I think it's the first study to, or the first intervention study at least, to show that um, barefoot conditioning might be effective at reducing injury rates in runners. And uh, I appreciate I've not uh, not popped this question on the uh, list of questions that I sent over to you, but what what is your opinion on uh, barefoot running? So I know, for example, as with everything in strength and conditioning, the pendulum swings one way and then the other. Um, yeah. But what's your opinion like who's it good for who's it bad for etc yeah it's, it's kind of just a, a slight extension to the the answer i just provided around um some barefoot conditioning that i guess i'm somewhere in the middle um again depends a little bit on the individual and so going back to my original example of uh running technique and gait retraining like it might be beneficial for some runners um that have got very low cadence for example got a very heavy heel strike they're striking a long way in front of the body to take them out of their running shoes put them on a a fairly soft surface for short periods of time and just get them to do some running without their shoes because they will it will force them to pull up their cadence a little bit pull their foot back underneath their hips because otherwise it hurts to, to run in the way that they're normally running with shoes on and so that might be an example of um an occasion where we would expose runners to some barefoot running um but with the majority of runners that i work with they will do some barefoot conditioning so what i mean by that is essentially some walking drills some running drills and some low intensity plyometrics without shoes on um so it's not really barefoot running as such but it's definitely some locomotive jumping type activities without their shoes on um and that goes for the majority of runners that I work with, but I guess in slightly different proportions, depending upon how much I think that they, they need to do that type of work. Um, but yeah, I, I typically wouldn't advocate runners do lots of work without shoes on, or at least in, in, in minimalist shoes, um, just because it, it, it seems to massively raise the risk of them getting injuries, particularly around the foot and the ankle. Um, and so if they are, if a runner is going to tr make that decision to transition, it's got to be very, very gradual over a long period of time. Yeah. And I think in a sort of social media driven world, I think that's the context that people often miss. They think, all right, oh, this study's proven it's good for this, that and the other. Let me go and run a 10K this weekend in zero drop shoes. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly that. <laughs> uh, and uh, finally, in terms of the foot and ankle uh, stuff, how do you... Um, periodize or manage that training so for example as a strength and conditioning coach you're not bleeding into overkill where i don't know you're doing heavy or intense type plyometric drills just when they're also doing the equivalent when they're uh, i don't know running track or uh, at that stage in their running season yeah i think it's it's just having clear communication with the technical coach and so usually you'd sit down at the start of the training year and you'd you kind of map out ideally um, what's going to happen over the next 12 months. So working back from their main objective of the year where they want to be in, in peak physical condition. Um, obviously, they, they're, they're usually going to have a track season and then they'll try and more often than not make decisions around whether they're going to have a cross country campaign, whether they're going to go indoors, if there's any key road races during the off season. And so these go into like a kind of loose periodized model first um, that you can then start uh, um, building some strength and conditioning decisions around. Um, I think the, the other key thing, particularly with with the more elite athletes that I've worked with, is they'll go away for, for quite long periods of time. Um, not not to get away from me, but uh, but to um, because they're going on a, a, an altitude training camp or a warm weather training camp for like for like three weeks at a time. Um, and so, so those for me are really important to put in the calendar, not just because I know when they're going to be away, but because it changes the environment that they're going to be operating in. And so if the terrain changes massively or if the technical coach indicates, OK, we're going to put in a big um, a big block of work here on the hills um, or the terrain's really undulating, that might influence the strength and conditioning support I provide in the mesocycle before that. Because essentially you're getting their body 
ready to cope with the demands of the uh, of, of the training camp and the environment that they're going to be changing to. Um, because again, that, that seems to be one one of the main risk factors for picking up injuries, just just changing the environment very quickly. Um, sorry, lost lost my train of thought a little bit there. What the original? So yeah, and, and like making sure we're not periodizing too much workload for the same muscle groups. And so yeah, working back from that, um, I think it's just getting a clear picture of like what the focus is going to be in the technical training, like whether they're going to be spending a lot of time in spikes doing a lot of high velocity work, doing a lot of hill work, or is it just a block of mileage? So that I can then, um, that, that then influences the strength and conditioning support. Um, so I'm just making sure that we're not overloading key joints, key muscle groups, key tissues, which then might expose that particular site to injury and actually trying to prepare that particular area for the stresses that are going to come in, in that next block. So in terms of, for example, I don't know if you've got a runner who's going into the tra- going into track season, then what you'd have more plyometric stuff prior to that, just so the ankle's ready for that springier surface. Or for example, I don't know, let's say they're then going to go into a marathon, which is going to be on concrete. What are these sort of specific things that might change between, I don't know, track, marathon on concrete, cross country in, I don't know, a boggy marsh? Would it just be mainly be around the plyometric stuff? Yeah, to, to some extent. I think if, like usually with S&C, and I've, I've not, again, I don't have any strong evidence for this or I've not even spoken to colleagues about it really, but um, I'd, I'd usually have the S&C almost like six weeks ahead of, 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 um, of the technical running work. So, for example, if I know the intensity of work's going to increase in – March time or April time, let's say, and they're going to be starting to do two sessions a week in spikes and they've not really worn spikes all winter, then I'd be doing a six week block of uh, where, where the priority is a little bit more around Achilles, calf, plantar fascia type conditioning um, in order to prepare them for that. So it doesn't mean that that's not already in the program. It just shifts in terms of um, of how much priority I might give it. And the same with really high speed sprint stuff that I don't want to be doing some really, really heavy um, and high velocity hamstring conditioning in a weights room. If they're doing if, they're, if they've been sprinting the night before or they're sprinting the day after because it's potentially going to lead to hamstring issues. So that would need to come in a block of a block just before where um, they might be doing some sprint work, but it's definitely not part of, of the main track sessions that they're doing. Um I can't think of too many examples of how I might change it for running um, on on concrete. Um, I, I guess I would just make sure that they're not doing too much volume of plyometrics and it's, it's, it's potentially not, not too high intensity. Um, I think when you've got runners that are doing a lot of cross country and particularly running down quite a lot of steep hills, like having an element of resistance training, which has got uh, more of an eccentric component to it is quite important. Um, so yeah, particularly with fell runners, cross country runners that are running in the UK, especially, um, that that becomes quite important for, and and plyometric training can obviously sit alongside that as well. That's got a bit more of an eccentric component. Um, but yeah, hopefully that that's a few examples that to illustrate that. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, just in the last four questions, wrapping up, uh, if you could observe one coach working with our athletes, who would you like to observe and why? I think I've, I've been following Stuart McGill on uh, Stuart McMillan on um, uh, Twitter and, and Instagram for years and years now. That like I'm sure you're probably aware of, of what he puts out and the athletes he's coached and his work over the last twenty years or so. Um, but yeah, he seems to have a, f- a phenomenal mind uh, for for both coaching and and uh, prescription of training for sprinters. So. Um, yeah, like going over to, to Altus in, in the States is, is something that I'd really like to do one day. Uh, but I'd, yeah, I'd love to observe him and get into his coaching brain a little bit more, I think. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, if you had one key take home for listeners of the podcast, whether it's technical coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, or maybe even running athletes themselves. I think try to keep quite an open mind, both in terms of like what your current biases are which a lot of people might not be aware of um 
keeping on new literature, scientific literature that's coming out. That doesn't necessarily mean going to read journal articles, but trying to keep abreast with, well, things like this, really, podcasts, um, Twitter, and, and just following experts in various different domains within sports science that are putting out good material and good information with some really cutting-edge research. And, yeah, by doing that, trying to challenge, challenge your bias, biases a little bit, in keeping an open mind as to what other people can can bring to the table, whether that be athletes or technical coaches. Yeah, and I think the point about bias is particularly pertinent for strength and conditioning coaches because, I mean, you, again, you made a, a point with your podcast with Rob that it's so easy to think as a strength and conditioning coach, uh, if you've got a recreational runner, oh, let's just get them stronger and they'll improve. And it's like, well, if they're running once a week, then probably going to get better running twice a week than adding in a strength session. Yeah, exactly. And I think I've been guilty a little bit of that. And yeah, like strength training is kind of panacea for, for injury and performance in, in runners. And yeah, a lot of the time people might not want to do it. They might not want to join a gym. They don't have the facility and the access. And when you actually look at what they're doing, it's kind of like, well, does the tr- their current training even warrant doing something like strength and conditioning? Like it might be better just to do the sport a bit more because you're barely doing any of it already. Um and yeah, I mean, like I'm doing more running at the moment and that's certainly the case for me, that if I want to get better at running, I need to do more running and not spend time in the gym squatting and benching. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably still going to stick with the squatting and benching and hope it somehow improves my running though. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one recommended resource, um, I mean, feel free to plug your own book. As I've said, I've very much enjoyed it and it's influenced a lot of my thinking over the years. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate that, Todd. Um, so yeah, so yeah, my book was out in 2015 on strength and conditioning for endurance running. Um, like, yes, yeah, so, sorry to use this opportunity to plug a new book, but if that's go for right. it, go for it. So we've um, I, I edited a textbook called "The Science and Practice of Middle and Long Distance Running." Um, it's been a project that's been going on for over two years now, probably more like two and a half years. Um, but we've got, I mean, yeah, I, I say I'm trying to plug the book, but it's actually more plugging um, like the authors that have contributed towards the book, because it's certainly it's certainly mostly not my work. Um, and so we've got as part of that book, 21 chapters. I think there's about 460 pages of text um, covering everything, really, that there is to know um, about the current research around training middle and long distance runners um and so yeah it's a resource that i'm proud of because yeah i've kind of brought together a lot of who i would consider world leading authorities in in various different areas related to the science of of distance running um but yeah i think it's going to be a great text and it will hopefully be really helpful particularly for the coaches and runners and practitioners that have got more of an interest in the science and kind of under, un, understanding what the up-to-date science is telling us and how that might inform training, recovery, um, and, and preparation of distance runners. And did you say that's been published yet, or there's a due date for Oh, sorry, it? yeah. It's um, it's going to be out in March, I think. Um, like, we've, we've, we've sent the final proofs back. And so, yeah, as far as I'm aware, it's, it's in press, um, and it should be due out in the next couple of months. Next couple of months. Well, I will go back and edit the uh, show notes of this podcast when it does come out because I'd be very interested to read that myself yeah thanks we'll uh, hopefully be able to get you a copy that'd be awesome that'd be awesome I'd be more than happy to uh, leave you a review and uh, finally how can people reach out to you if they do want to find out more about your work or just get in touch probably Twitter's the best place I think as it is for a lot of people these days um, so my handle is at rich underscore blagrove spelled b-l-a-g-r-o-v-e um, i'm more, more than happy for people to email me as well so my email address is r.c.blagrove at lbro which is l-b-o-r-o dot a-c dot u-k um and yeah th- those those two places are probably best awesome and uh, all the questions wrapped up in just under an hour that's impeccable timing rich i really appreciate it Again, thanks for having me on, Todd, and uh, yeah, really appreciate the questions. My absolute pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to episode number 37 of the Platform to Perform podcast with your host, as always, myself, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, Dr. Richard Blagro. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then I'd really appreciate it if you could leave me a review via your preferred podcast platform. If you'd like to go one better than that, you can support the podcast by checking out www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P Coaching. In exchange for signing up, you'll receive exclusive access to all of my educational strength and conditioning content, including my recently uploaded foot and ankle conditioning for jumping sports, which is heavily influenced by uh, Richard's book. You'll also have access to all of my calisthenics uh, kids lessons that I've delivered live. You'll also have access to every strength and conditioning program that I've written and released exclusively via my Patreon. Thank you very much for supporting the podcast and I'll catch you again in the next episode.